An obscure 10th century confederation of Turkic-speaking peoples between the Caspian and the Black Seas gets transformed through the power of imagination into just about anything and everything. The Khazars become symbols for a number of claims, including being the origin of the Cossacks, or at least some of them, the real Jews, fake Jews, and more. And yes, it's pronounced Khazar, not Khazar, as I have previously mispronounced it in previous episodes. Today, the Khazar myth is often used to bolster anti-Semitic tropes and support pseudo-historical narratives and even justify invading another country. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conspiracy Clearinghouse, Khazar Love, Love Triangle. Triangle. Don't forget you can subscribe to this podcast, and if you like what we do, donate via our Buy Me a Coffee page. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber, filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in the clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. Round and Round The Khazars were a semi-nomadic Turkic people who established an empire that, at its height, stretched from the Aral Sea in the east to modern-day Odessa in Ukraine in the west, the Russian city of Kazan in the north, to where the borders of Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan meet Turkey in the south. Pretty big, in other words, and right at several key trade crossroads, including control of the western Silk Road. To their west was the Christian Byzantine Empire. To their east were the Muslim Umayyad and Abbasid Caliphates. To the south, the Persian Sasanian Empire, who were followers of Zoroastrianism. Sometime around the 9th or 10th century, the Kagan of the Khazars called for representatives of the three main religions, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, though not Zoroastrianism, to come to his court and basically pitch their faith. The Khazars would then convert en masse from their religion, which was a shamanic animist faith centered around the sky god Tengri, to whichever religion had the best case made for it. Representatives were dispatched, and the presentations went on for several days. In the end, the Kagan chose Judaism. The entire nobility converted, as did much of the general population, and then the Khazars vanished from history. So went the story. This notion was picked up and amplified by Serbian writer Milorad Pavic in his experimental 1984 novel Dictionary of the Khazars, a lexicon novel, translated into English in 1988. It's a clever work divided into three sections, Christian, Muslim, and Jewish, with tales presented alphabetically and cross-referenced when different versions of the same tale appearing depending on which of the three dictionaries you're reading. 
The reader can choose a number of different ways to read the book, and there were two editions printed, a male version and a female version, published separately and having a difference of one paragraph. For Pavic, the Khazars were a symbol of people living between great powers and great religions. But the story of the Khazars had symbolic meaning for others well before Pavic used them as a framework to explore the situation many nations in Warsaw Pact Cold War Europe found themselves in. For others, stories of the Khazars were used to form their own identities. Starting in the 17th century, the Zaporozhian Cossacks of Ukraine started telling a founding myth about their origins, that they were descendants of Khazars who had become Slavicized. In the 18th century, this narrative was used as an argument for their autonomy actually being written down in the treaties and resolutions of the rights and freedoms of the Zaporozhian army, better known as the Constitution of Pilip Urlik, which was adopted in 1710 in the Moldovan city of Tigina, today known as Bender. The Cossacks were a semi-nomadic people with a military bent that had come out of southern Russia and Ukraine's Pontic Caspian steppe, which stretches from north of the Caspian Sea to the Caucasus Mountains all the way west to the Moldovan and Romanian shores of the Western Black Sea, and also includes parts of Bulgaria and Kazakhstan. This was once the stomping grounds of the East Iranian horse-riding nomads, the Iron Age Sumerians, who hung around until the 630s BCE, then the Scythians, who endured until the 3rd century BCE, and then the Samaritans, who lasted 700 years until the 4th century CE. This region may be the first area where horses were domesticated. According to the Kurgan hypothesis that arose in the 1880s and then really took off in the 1950s, getting more evidence to support it in the noughties, this was the homeland of a Kurgan culture, meaning one that made burial mounds, that were the original speakers of the language we now call Proto-Indo-European, often shortened to just P-I-E, or Pi. It is from this proto-language that all modern European languages come, including Albanian, Armenian, Greek, Persian, and all forms of Baltic, Celtic, Slavic, Germanic, and Italic, or Romance if you prefer, languages. Eastern Orthodox Christianity became the faith of the Cossacks, who also organized themselves in ways that we might term democratic today. The Russians used them as soldiers in groups known as hosts, often on horseback, and gave them special privileges in exchange for their service. The Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth did the same, and Polish thinkers really started mythologizing the Cossacks, with some suggesting that maybe they were the direct descendants of the long-vanished Khazars. It was known that there were Jewish Cossacks for a long time, until the 1596 Union of Brest split the Ruthenian Orthodox Church in Poland and Lithuania off from the Eastern Orthodox Church, aligning themselves with the Pope and starting a centuries-long persecution of Jews. Ruthenian Orthodoxy would eventually evolve into what are called the Ukrainian and Belarusian Greek Catholic Churches. Even so, some Jews continued to join the Cossacks as late as the 1700s, fighting in conflicts such as the Russo-Turkish War of 1769-74. In 1787, the Russian minister Prince Potemkin, a big fan of the Jews, founded an entirely Jewish Cossack regiment with the express purpose of freeing Jerusalem from the Muslim Ottomans. This hypothetical foundational myth for the Cossacks would eventually transform into the 19th century pseudo-historical idea that Ashkenazi Jews in Europe are descendants of the Khazars. State, State of, the, of nation. the nation Most of us in the West know at least some of the Jewish story. 
They are at once both a religion and an ethnicity, with the line being matrilineal, meaning that it passes down from the mother to the children. They originated in the Levant, called Canaan back then, in the second millennium BCE, and are written about as far back as the late Bronze Age in the 13th century BCE. During the 12th Egyptian dynasty around 1800 BCE, a Semitic Canaanite people called the Hyksos showed up in Egypt. One of their innovations was the war chariot, which they used to establish land for themselves. Eventually, they would take over and form the 15th Pharaonic dynasty. Some think the people later known as the Israelites were descendants of these Hyksos people exiled to Judea after a war expelled them from Egypt. These Israelites built settlements and farms, speaking a version of an Afro-Asiatic Northwest Semitic language that arose in Canaan and is now referred to as Biblical Hebrew. Several nomadic groups who spoke a similar language, known collectively as the Hebrews, came into the area and mixed with the Israelites racially, culturally, and religiously, taking the Israelite god Yahweh, who'd started off as a mountaintop god in the Sinai, as their own though the region still had plenty of other Canaanite gods like the solar god Baal, their fertility goddess Asherah, and the head honcho known only as El, who probably originally came from the Hittites. This new configuration of people founded the two kingdoms of Israel and Judah with ten tribes ruling different sub-regions. Sometime around 740 BCE, the Assyrians swept into the kingdom of Israel and took them all captive, relocating them to various parts of the Neo-Assyrian Empire, which stretched from Egypt to central Turkey, from the Arabian Gulf to the Mediterranean. The scattered ten tribes would become known as the Lost Ten Tribes of Israel. The Assyrians laid siege to the kingdom of Judea as well, but could not take it or its capital, Jerusalem. Then, in 605 BCE, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar II laid siege to Jerusalem and made it a tribute-paying vassal. Jehoiakim, king of Judah, eventually stopped paying tribute, so the Babylonians moved in and, in 587 BCE, destroyed Jerusalem and Solomon's temple and occupied the kingdom of Judah. Five years later, much of the local populace was moved to Babylon as slaves, where they would remain for 43 years. So at this point, you have the Israelite Jews scattered around the old Assyrian Empire, you've got some Jews living in Egypt, and you've got some taken captive by the Babylonians. But then the Persians defeated the Babylonians and allowed some of these Judean exiles to return to the new Persian province of Yehud Madinata. Happy to be back in Jerusalem, these Hebrews started rebuilding the temple and the city. Time went on, but then there were the Romans, and then the Muslims, and then the Crusades, and more Muslims. And basically, while some Jews did remain in the Levant, through all these various invasions and enslavements, many of them were flung to places far from their ancestral homeland. With so many different Jewish communities scattered all over the place, naturally they began to diverge. There were the Mizrahi Jews in the Middle East, including those who managed to remain in Israel or Judea, but also in North Africa, and which included the Maghrebi Jews. There were the Sephardi Jews in the Iberian Peninsula, today Spain and Portugal, and the Ashkenazi Jews who mainly settled in Eastern and Central Europe. Often the Hebrew language they spoke would mix with local languages to create new hybrid tongues such as the Ladino, spoken by Sephardic Jews, which was a mixture of Old Spanish and other Romance languages of the time with Hebrew, Aramaic, and Arabic, and Yiddish, which combined Hebrew and Aramaic with Germanic and Slavic languages. In 1806, Ukrainian rabbi Isaac Baer Levinson mused that maybe Ashkenazi Jews had come from the Khazars, 
The German legal historian Gustav von Ives liked this idea, since he was trying to pin down just where the heck the Russians had come from. A prevailing theory of the time had been that the Russians had been a group of Norman Vikings from Sweden called the Varangians, who had ruled the Kievan Rus, an area that includes parts of Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus. These people would later join the Byzantine Empire as the Vengarian Guard, mentioned briefly in an earlier episode about werewolves in the section on berserkers. Other people, however, said, no, 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 the rulers of the Kievan Rus were a native Slavic people. Van Evas then tossed out a third possibility. Maybe they were the descendants of the Khazars. Some other thinkers and scholars liked this idea, and the notion got some legs. In 1847, Karl Neumann, a German expert on the East, went further and added Rabbi Isaac Bear Levinson's idea that the Khazars were the founders of the line of European Ashkenazi Jews. In 1869, a Russian expert on the East, Abraham Eliyahu Kharkavi, seconded the idea. Then in 1872, Abraham Firkovich, originally from northwest Ukraine, but one of the Turkic-speaking but Judaism-practicing Karite people, said that he knew for a fact that his people, the Karites, who were spread as far as Lithuania and the Crimea, came from a group of Turkic-speaking people who had converted one day to Judaism. And so the Khazar myth got up and running. Various other groups, such as the Turkic-speaking Krimchaks of Crimea, who practiced a type of Judaism themselves, were soon getting included into this great conversion, and European writers and thinkers started saying all kinds of things, like that most Jews in Europe today actually came from people who had never been in Judah or Israel at all. While this was purely an intellectual argument for the likes of H.G. Wells and American early anthropologist Roland Dixon, this idea would echo through the years, distorting in the way that echoes do. When the Zionist movement kicked off in 1897, some opponents would use the idea that most Jews had no real connection to the land known as Israel or the Levant or Palestine or whatever you wanted to call it. They would use this as an argument against the creation of a Jewish homeland there. This was all a bit academic, mind you, since the Ottomans still controlled the Levant, though they didn't seem to have a huge problem with any Jewish people who wanted to settle there, provided they paid their taxes. Of course, the Ottoman Empire collapsed after their defeat in World War I, and the British were given the mandate for Palestine by the newly formed League of Nations. Jewish immigration to Palestine increased, though Muslims continued to outnumber them. With the Nazi takeover of Europe, Jewish people once again found themselves fleeing all over when they could manage to escape. Historian Abraham Pollock had emigrated to Haifa in Palestine in 1923 at the age of 13 after his mother had fled Russian pogroms. In 1941, he wrote an article that categorically stated that the Khazars had in fact converted to Judaism and followed that up with a book in 1943 called Khazaria, History of a Jewish Kingdom in Europe, which went on to say that all Ashkenazi Jews were descendants of these converted Khazars. He also thought Yiddish had arisen in the Crimea, not in Germany. This would mean that Ashkenazi Jews were not Middle Eastern at all, but rather a blend of all kinds of different people, including Asian, Slavic, Nordic, and even Africans. A totally different people from the Sephardic Jews living in Spain and Portugal. This idea was heavily promoted by scientific racist and eugenicist Hans F. K. Gunther, one of the main influences on Nazi ideas about race. He thought of Ashkenazi Jews as sort of an inbred mongrel people. 
When Nazi Germany moved into Soviet territory and began setting up camps for Jews there, the Crimean Karaites and Krimchaks both made the argument that they were direct descendants of the Khazars and so not part of this mongrel Ashkenazi group that the Nazis seemed so keen to exterminate. The argument worked for the Karaites, who were given a pass by the Nazis, but the Krimchaks were not so lucky. 6,000 of them would be exterminated in the camps, almost 75% of their entire population. After the war, the Khazar origin of Ashkenazi Jews' idea was taken up again by anti-Zionists and then by anti-Semites. Various sorts of scientific attempts ensued to confirm the hypothesis, if we can call it that, by looking at things like blood types. Variations on the theme sprouted up like that European Jews were actually a combination of Khazar and German Jews, but basically this became, again, an academic pursuit. However, various racists also explored the Khazar myth, looking for evidence that they were maybe the Gog in the land of Magog, mentioned in the Bible, or that they were the famous Red Jews of the Middle Ages, who were seen as a dire threat to Christianity. Muslims would also sometimes get included in the Red Jew category. Red because they needed the blood of Christians in order to perform their evil, evil satanic rituals. But then in the 1970s, when woo-woo started getting seriously commoditized, the Khazar myth got another boost, entering the wider public and fueling anti-Semitism and historical reconstructionism along the way. Love will tear us apart again. Ah, the 1970s, a time period in the United States at least marked by a rapid liberalization of society, countered by a deeply ingrained conservatism that rejected these changes, as well as escalating crime rates and the entering into pop culture of topics like the Bermuda Triangle, Bigfoot, ancient aliens, and other, quote, fringe stuff. Into this heady miasma walks Hungarian-born Jewish journalist and writer Arthur Kostler, He'd made a big name for himself with his incredibly excellent 1940 anti-authoritarian novel, Darkness at Noon, as well as an earlier book about Spartacus called The Gladiators, and his first work in English, Arrival and Departure. These three books together form a sort of uh, trilogy about morality. In 1976, Kostler published The Thirteenth Tribe, which pushed the Khazar origin of Ashkenazi Jews' idea. Some people hated it, like the Israeli ambassador to the UK who called it, quote, an anti-Semitic action financed by the Palestinians, while others went along for the ride, at least in as much as that the idea was very much in vogue among many Jewish intellectuals, especially in Hungary, and so you had to take it into account regardless of the idea's actual veracity or not. Many Jews were saying it was probably true, and so therefore if you wanted to understand modern Jewish culture, you needed to understand this idea. Kostler's motivation had been that if modern European Jews could be shown to not actually be descended from the Jews in the Bible, you know, the ones that, quote, killed Christ, maybe one of the main pillars of anti-Semitism would just disappear. Well-intentioned and a bit naive, and no surprise that things did not, in fact, turn out that way at all. Pseudoscience folks of all stripes started conducting what they like to think of as, quote, studies in genetic lines, more looking into blood types, language, religious symbolism, and more. 
Some, perhaps thinking they were helping the Jewish cause, also published findings like that there was a strain of African Negro genetics in Arabs, but not in Jews. That's what made them different. I guess this was supposed to somehow absolve Jews of the crime of being part black, I guess. It's all nonsense, but hey, that's the 70s. And this kind of stuff continued into the 21st century. But as more than a few have pointed out, this is all about Ashkenazi Jews, but actually says nothing about Sephardic Jews or the Mizrahim Jews or Ethiopian Jews or any of the other Jewish groups out there, some of which are actually in Africa, like in Uganda. True, True faith. faith. Kosovo's revival of the Khazar myth fed very nicely into white supremacist hate groups like the third incarnation of the Ku Klux Klan. The Klan was far more fractured than the earlier versions and used some pretty nutty notions to try and hold their members together by creating overarching narratives that influenced them in a cult-like fashion. One of these ideas is the Christian identity movement, which had become popular among racists back in the 20s and 30s. This said the only real descendants of Abraham were those of Celtic or Germanic bloodlines. You see, those are the real Jews, and the people we call Jews are fake Jews. Christian identists were happy to share with other pale races and even included Italians in their mythology. According to them, the true direct descendants of the 12 tribes of Israel all came to Europe. Some apparently didn't like the heat, so the tribe of Asher went to Sweden, the tribe of Dan went to Denmark, Naphtali went to Norway, Benjamin to Iceland, Issachar to Finland. Further south, the tribe of Ephraim went to Great Britain, Reuben to the Netherlands, and Zebulun to France. And weirdly, the tribe of Massanet apparently went to the United States, which I thought was settled by Europeans, but... Mm. The tribe of Judah went to Germany, which gives us the odd narrative that some splinter historical reconstructionists promote, uh, unlike their fellows, who deny the Holocaust happened at all. Some say, no, it did happen, but it was the real Jews, the Germans, getting rid of the fake Jews. Two Southern European countries also get tapped in Christian identity with the tribe of Gad having gone to Italy and the tribe of Simeon going to Spain. It's a little weird that Greece is not included in there, cradle of Western civilization, birthplace of democracy and all that. Plus, without Greek immigrants to the United States, there would be no such thing as American barbecue. Anyway, embedded in that suite of wrong thinking and pseudo-history was the concept of the dual seed or the serpent seed. This had it that the serpent in the Garden of Eden did much more than just trick Eve into eating from the tree, but actually mated with her, and the result of that tryst was the boy Cain. This created two distinct races, one descended from Adam and Abel, and the other from Eve and Cain. Obviously, white people are the good guys here, so they're the children of Adam and are destined to inherit the earth and enter heaven, while all the non-white people are from that other branch of the family, part human, part evil serpent. And the darker a person's skin, the more serpent that person has in them. Eventually, there will be a great battle for control of the world, a race war that the whites are destined to win, but only after many, many losses. The serpent seed idea itself grew out of the nationalist, pseudo-archaeological, pseudo-historical, and pseudo-religious idea of British Israelism. This said that it was the English who are actually the real Israelites and that the British royal family are direct descendants of King David. Also, those early Jews, when they came to the Sceptre Dial, already spoke English. 
This stupid idea started back in 1590, but really got its legs in the 1880s, infecting the U.S. as well, where it morphed into any one of Celtic, Nordic, or Anglo-Saxon heritage being the real Jews. It also influenced Mormonism and Pentecostalism, and it was a big influence on Mary Baker Eddy, founder of the Church of Christ Scientist. In 1919, the British Israel World Foundation, or BIWF, was founded in London to promote the idea of British Israelism. Since then, they have moved their HQ to the tiny village of Low Etherley near the town of Bishop Auckland, about 25 miles inland from Middlesbrough. It's thought that today the BIWF has between three and 5,000 members. Hardcore serpent seeders also postulate that there were, in fact, two separate creations in the Bible. Oh, yes. God, you see, created the animals and humanity out of mud on the sixth day, and then he took a break. But after that, on the eighth or maybe the ninth day, he created Adam and Eve out of clay. These were the first white people and given dominion over all the previously created creatures, including those earlier people made of mud. This notion is probably where the very nasty white supremacist term for people of color, mud people, comes from. Touched by the hand of God. Well, it was not just white people who latched onto some variation of the Khazar myth. As far back as the late 19th century, there have been black groups who think that actually they, black people, are the real Jews. Two men both claim to have received revelations from God that African Americans specifically were the descendants of the Jews talked about in the Bible. Frank Cherry took his vision and started the Church of the Living God, the pillar ground of truth for all nations in 1886, and William Saunders Crowdy started the Church of God and Saints of Christ 10 years later in 1896. Cherry's church said that God had told him that the Talmud was the ultimate religious text, believers should always pray facing east, that the earth was really a big square, and that Jesus was black and returning in the year 2000, when he would save everyone who followed the Ten Commandments and damn those that didn't. So, sort of a, a black Jews for Jesus, in a sense. Of course, there were a bunch of other no-nos as well, like no emotional displays while worshipping, no heavy drinking, no eating pork, and no playing the piano. Also, he said, God told him that any white people claiming to be Jews were not really Jews and were, quote, interlopers. Crowdy's church was Jewish but also believed that Jesus was a prophet, and it's a mixture of Tauronic Judaism and New Testament ideas and practices. They like to use the Hebrew calendar. Men are circumcised and wear a yarmulke or kippot. Saturday is their holy day, and religious holidays follow the ones in Judaism. But they also baptize members, do ritual foot washing, and have a ceremony that turns bread and water into the body and blood of Christ. It is forbidden for members to ever drink wine. This church would engender several variations over the years, including one that followed a mixture of Judaism and Orthodox Christianity. Crowdy also said that all African people with dark skin were descendants of the true Jews talked about in the Torah and the Bible. In 1919, Wentworth Arthur Matthew, a dark-skinned immigrant to the U.S. from St. Kitts in the British West Indies, though later he would claim he was born in Nigeria, started the Commandment Keepers of the Living God. This group combined Jewish ideas and rituals with Pan-Africanism and some of the hybrid notions coming out of Jamaica. 
When he moved his church to Brooklyn in the 1930s, he lobbied New York Jewish groups to recognize him and his people as Jews, which they did not, and started using street preaching as a frontline tactic. Part of his creed was that, quote, all genuine Jews are black men, descendants of King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. However, he did not openly reject lighter-skinned Jews, finding them to be spiritual kin of a sort. The commandment keepers of the living God are still active today and have a few splinter groups that take a harder line, like One West Camp, who believe in both the Old and New Testaments, which last time I checked is the Bible, but do not think of themselves as Christians. They also deny the Holy Trinity, take the line that all black people and indigenous Americans are true descendants of the tribes of Israel and say that Jesus was black. In 1966, Ben Ami Ben Israel founded the African Hebrew Israelites of Jerusalem, commonly known as the Black Hebrews. He believed that black people are all descended from the tribe of Judah, who went into exile after the Romans destroyed the Second Temple in 70 CE. They also have their own idiosyncratic interpretation of Judaism, rejecting the Talmud, keeping Saturday holy and various Jewish holidays, circumcising male babies, wearing the knotted tassels known as tzizit, wearing only natural fiber clothing, holding a strictly vegan diet, banning all forms of birth control, and allowing men to have multiple wives. It's a real mishmash. In 1969, a group of black Hebrews went to Israel and claimed citizenship under the right of return. The Israelis said that since they could not provide any proof of Jewish lineage and they had not had an Orthodox conversion ceremony, they could not get citizenship, which meant they could not get benefits and work permits. The black Hebrews cried racism, and while some returned to America, others stayed working illegally until they were caught and deported. But a few had taken the step of renouncing their American citizenship when they got to Israel so that they could not be deported. After much legal wrangling over many years, those black Hebrews who had stayed in Israel were finally granted permanent residency, with the first one being a man named Ella Kim Ben Israel in 2009. Shell shot. But the perceived conflicts, and wholly imaginary ones, between Ashkenazi Jews and black Israelites is not always just an academic exercise. The Hebrew-Israelite movement has some black racists as well who preach some, well, pretty hateful things. Wearing military-style garb and carrying billy clubs, knives, and other weapons, they preach what is essentially Christian identity ideology, but with blacks on top instead of whites. There will be a race war with God's approval, and Jesus, who is black, will lead the charge, wreaking havoc on the white oppressors, killing most of them and making the survivors slaves for the victorious black people to use as they will. Oh, and black people are the real Jews. The Ashkenazi are fake Jews, descendants of the serpent seed, which is quite nice. They take the whole mud people idea and flip it around racially. Some extreme factions use what one former member calls, quote, evangelical terrorizing, openly denying the Holocaust and shouting Heil Hitler at Jewish people. Like General Mayakala Ka, a preacher of the Israelite Church of God in Jesus Christ in Baltimore, who is also incidentally not a real general. The Israelite school also likes to mark Christian holidays by lynching effigies of the Virgin Mary and for Christmas of Santa Claus. Apparently no one has told them that Santa is secular, it seems. They also use fear-inducing and brainwashing techniques on new recruits to make them more compliant. It has many of the trappings of a cult. 
In addition to hating all white people and all Jews, they also hate black women who have lots of sex, doctors who perform abortions, Africans in Africa, who they say sold black Jews to European slavers back in the day, and all LGBTQ people who they say should all be put to death. An attack on a gay nightclub in Atlanta in 2006 was carried out by three men who claimed to be Hebrew Israelites. They also like to produce music that mixes their message with some smooth R&B, and the former head of the church, Jermaine Grant, used to hold his own version of the Grammys called the Archangel Awards, with prizes going to loyal followers who can also carry a tune. One award-winning member is Wanya Morris, lead singer of Boys Two Men. When Grant took over the leadership, he also implemented mandatory tithes and gift-giving from all church members, in at least one case a full 20% of a person's total wealth. He then used that money to buy himself high-end items from places like Gucci, stretch limos, multiple very large houses, and to take lavish vacations. He's allowed to do this because he is the Holy Spirit made flesh, and so he deserves it. His financial activity got him into trouble finally with the authorities, and he pled guilty to attempting to defraud the U.S. government by not paying taxes, but then he turned around and said the whole thing was a frame-up. Please keep in mind that most black Hebrew followers are not violent or even especially anti-Semitic except for saying that they're the real Jews and pale-skinned Jews are not real Jews. But a few extreme members of these extreme factions have gone on to commit violence in the name of a black Yahweh. 23-year-old black Hebrew Israelite preacher from Ohio Marcus Wayne Chenault shot and killed Martin Luther King Jr.'s mother, Alberta King, on June 30, 1974, just six years after her son's murder. She was playing the organ at the Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta when he shot her. The reason he did this, he said, was that his mentor in Cincinnati had taught him that all current black church leaders were corrupt and in league with Satan and white people, and so he took that to mean, as he put it, quote, all Christians are my enemies. Chenault had first tried to kill the Reverend Jesse Jackson in Chicago, but it failed, so he changed his plan to shooting MLK Jr.'s father in Atlanta, but then Mrs. King was right there and an easy target, so he shot her instead. He also shot and killed a church deacon and wounded a school teacher who was in the church at the time. Chenault was arrested and sentenced to life in prison, partly because the King family was against capital punishment. He died of a stroke while in prison in 1995 at the age of 44. But anti-Semitism from black Israelites has been rearing its ugly head more recently as well. In late 2019, just as COVID was gathering its forces for a global onslaught, there were two attacks on Ashkenazi Jews. The first that occurred was a series of incidents that spread out over a bit more than a week. On November 30th, 2019, Uber driver Michael Rumberger picked up 47-year-old David Nathaniel Anderson and his 50-year-old girl Francine Graham at the Hudson Mall in Jersey City, New Jersey, taking them to a moving company in the city of Bayonne at the southern tip of the peninsula that Jersey City is on. Upon arriving, they physically attacked him and shot him in the head, put his body in the car trunk, and then left the car about a mile away. The couple then returned to Austintown, Ohio, a suburb of Youngstown, with a U-Haul they'd stolen, bought a number of weapons, like some AR-15 semi-automatic rifles, a 12-gauge shotgun, a 9mm semi-automatic pistol, and a Glock 17, another 9mm pistol. And then they videoed themselves training with these. They returned to New Jersey, shooting at a car being driven by a Jewish person near Newark on December 3rd. 
They spent a week scoping out various Jewish community centers, schools, and shops, including the J.C. Kosher Supermarket in the Greenville neighborhood of Jersey City, a building that also houses a Jewish day school with 50 students. On December 10th, they were hiding out in Bayview Cemetery, which has one of the oldest Jewish sections in the state, when 39-year-old police detective Joseph Seals just happened to go there to meet a confidential informant. The couple saw him, knew he was a police officer, thought he was there for them, so they shot him and killed him. They then jumped in their car and immediately drove to the kosher supermarket wearing tactical gear and opened fire, killing three people and wounding others. Police showed up quickly and a shootout ensued. Both assailants were killed in the skirmish and one civilian and three police officers were injured. Later it would be discovered the couple had a pipe bomb in their van as well, which would have caused an enormous explosion. Also in the van was a note Anderson had apparently written that said, quote, I do this because my creator makes me do this and I hate who he hates. Both he and Graham were extremist black Israelites who'd left an online trail of anti-Jewish comments and writings, including that all police were controlled by the evil Jews, who are, of course, fake Jews, quote, imposters who inhabit the synagogues of Satan, saying that the Nazis who started World War II were actually fake Jews and pushing the Khazar myth that what we call Ashkenazi Jews are actually descendants from the Khazars who had converted to Islam way back when and not real Jews at all. Anderson had also listened to a number of angry sermons by Louis Farrakhan, which promoted the idea of a Khazarian mafia who were responsible for many of the evils of our times, including the 9-11 attacks in New York and at the Pentagon. The couple's attack was classified as a hate crime since it clearly targeted Jewish people. Then President Trump tweeted condolences to the families of the victims, as did Governor Phil Murphy. However, Jersey City Board of Education trustee Joan Terrell Page, who is African American, posted that the attack was understandable because black people in the city had been, quote, threatened, intimidated, and harassed by what she called, quote, brutes of the Jewish community. She also said that local rabbis were selling human body parts on the black market and employed other black people to be, quote, brave enough to hear the message Anderson and Graham were trying to get out. Needless to say, Ms. Terrell Page was asked to resign. Then, on December 28th, the seventh night of Hanukkah, mass 37-year-old African-American Grafton Thomas broke into the Monzi, New York home of Hasidic rabbi Chaim Rottenberg during a gathering of about 100 people who were there to celebrate the lighting of the candles. Thomas started attacking people in the home in a frenzy with a machete. People fought back, hitting him with a chair, among other things, and he fled after just two minutes inside the house. Yet in that short space of time, he'd injured five people, including a 72-year-old man who went into a coma for 59 days before dying. Thomas then tried to go into the synagogue next door, but it was locked, so he got in his car and sped away. Police finally caught up with him in Harlem and arrested him with no problems. It turned out he had quite a rap sheet, assault, injuring a police animal, apparently he'd punched a police horse, possession of a controlled substance, and much more. In his home, they found journals that showed he was an adherent of an extreme faction of black Hebrew Israelites. He believed that Hebrew Israelites, meaning pale-skinned Jews, had stolen the birthright of what he called Ebonoid Israelites, meaning black people, real Jews. He also had a number of Nazi swastikas, pictures of Hitler, and materials on Nazi culture, as it was put in the report. His browser history also showed he'd recently searched for Why Did Hitler Hate the Jews, German Jewish Temples Near Me, and Zionist Temples in the area. 
It would turn out that Grafton Thomas had attacked a police officer with a knife the previous year and at that time had been remanded to a medical center in Goshen where psychiatrists diagnosed him with paranoid schizophrenia. However, he was released and conducted the December 28, 2019 attack. In April 2020, a federal judge would finally declare him unfit to stand trial and order him hospitalized. World, World in, in motion. motion. It's always problematic when looking at black anti-Semitism since black people in many societies are treated as second-class citizens or worse and are often the target of racist attacks themselves. And yet it would also be disingenuous to ignore this. Recent idiotic statements by Kanye West have once again brought the issue to the forefront of the ongoing cultural conversation. And people like Australian-born NBA athlete Kyrie Irving are open proponents of a number of conspiracy theories. Irving recently came out as a flat earther, staunchly anti-vaccine. He says COVID vaccines are designed to connect black people to a master computer for a plan for Satan, and that JFK was killed because he wanted to stop the banking cartels. And when people use the word banking cartel, it's usually a code for anti-Semitic sentiments. They mean Jews. He has also supported the book and the subsequent film made from it, Hebrews to Negroes, Wake Up Black America, which includes the ideas that these pale-skinned so-called Jews worship Satan and were behind the Atlantic slave trade and control all the media. He once responded to claims that he is anti-Semitic by saying, quote, I cannot be anti-Semitic if I know where I come from, meaning that black people are the real Jews and he doesn't hate black people and so therefore he's not anti-Semitic. In short, he is a black Hebrew Israelite and conspiracist. This fringe problem is one that black leaders in America are very much trying to contend with, as are other black groups that have other various ideas involving pseudo-history. It seems rather apparent that much of the black people are the real Jews community is deeply conspiracy-minded since the very foundation of these beliefs requires that the people that we think of as Jews, mainly Ashkenazim, are pulling some kind of a fast one and the rest of us are going along with it. Of course, the intriguing but almost wholly inaccurate legend of the Khazars often fits right in with this suite of inaccuracies. Power, Power, corruption, corruption, and lies. lies. Many people were puzzled when Vladimir Putin justified his February 24, 2022 invasion of Ukraine by declaring that he was trying to root out, quote, Nazis. Nazis? What on earth was he talking about? Isn't Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky Jewish? How can a Jew be a part of the Nazis who famously hate Jews? Well, it does make sense within the Russian variant of the Khazar myth. A post showed up on the social media site Telegram, written in German, that started off by saying, in all caps, quote, Understand the connection between the process of returning to our original divine DNA and the Russian offensive against the alien Khazarian Mafia in Ukraine. The Khazarian Mafia are the people we call, quote, Ukrainian Nazis and against whom the Russians are fighting. It goes on to say that the Khazars showed up in the territory of Ukraine around 700 CE, worshipping a god they called Elohim, calling themselves converts to Judaism and hell-bent on destroying all white people. It all kicked off in 759 CE when they tried to subjugate ethnic Russians in the area, slaughtering them to drink their blood. 
This tapped into other pseudo-historical nonsense from previous decades and started spinning a series of complicated narratives on Telegram, BitChute, and elsewhere that was picked up by anti-Semites of all stripes, conspiracists of various bents, and QAnoners. The tale that started emerging in April 2022 as Russia continued to attack locations in Ukraine grew and grew until it all made perfect sense to people inclined to believe it. You see, these Khazars, whoever they were, worshipped Satan, who they named Elohim, a word that is used in the Bible to describe God in a plural aspect. These Khazars saw all these real Jewish people, who in this version are the pale-skinned Russian people and who are God's chosen people, like it says in the Bible, but these Khazars said, no, no, we're the real Jews, and then they began to try and eliminate the actual real Jews so they could rule the world and Satan could have a decisive victory over God. Ha ha. But then the Russians fought back, starting a war that caused the Khazars to flee west, settling in places like Poland and Germany. There they infiltrated societies and continued to weave webs of deceit and plot insidious plots, still with the aim of ruling the world one day. They interbred with white-skinned locals there as camouflage, and these are the so-called Ashkenazi Jews that today make up something like 80% of all Jews on earth. The direct lineal descendants of the true secret rulers of the Khazars are the Rothschilds, so the conspiracy theory goes. Over the years, the Rothschilds have instigated wars, famines, the Great Depression, and a number of other nasty events. And in the 20th century, they became the Nazis in Germany. After the war, when they were defeated by the Russians, they took over all aspects of banking and media, laying the groundwork for the new world order that they still intend to impose upon the world. And this whole time, they were never really dislodged from Ukraine, and pretty much everyone in Ukraine who is not ethnically Russian is in fact a Khazar. And Khazars are Nazis, and so therefore, Ukrainians are Nazis. This is why the Russians are not just focusing on military targets, but slaughtering whole villages that they occupy to try and eliminate the centuries-old Khazar threat in Ukraine permanently. See, it all makes sense why the Russians are the good guys here. It's unclear if Putin actually believes this colossal bucket of horse shit or if he's just using it as justification for his real aim, which is to reconstitute as much of the old USSR as possible before he dies. But it's appealing to other conspiracy groups as well. Christian identity folks love it, since the overall structuring framework of real Jews versus fake Jews fits in with their notion that the Aryans are the real Jews. Some black Hebrew Israelites also like it because they think black people are the real Jews, or at least black people in America. And QAnoners have started taking it up because they can say anti-Semitic things without actually saying anti-Semitic things. They can make references to the synagogue of Satan and Khazars and say, no, they don't mean all Jews. They just mean fake Jews, which are the Ashkenazi, who those of us who live in the fact-based world know are actually the Jews. It also allows them to heap scorn upon modern Israelis who they cast as fake Jews and traitors to true Judaism without overtly saying all Jews are evil. It's only the fake ones, the serpent seed ones, the followers of the dark one, the invisible masters behind the global cabal of child-torturing cannibals that Donald Trump, who one assumes it must be seen as a real Jew in QAnon circles, is waging a covert war against. 
And yes, a few QAnoners have taken that whole serpent seed trope literally and say that these fake Jew Khazars are actually shape-shifting lizards from Orion. Because of course they do. Forget that the Khazars, as best as can be determined, were actually a complicated blend of Turkic-speaking people from various regions, but also Slavs, Scythians, Hunnic Bulgars, Iranians, and Alans, who were a nomadic pastoral Iranian people from the North Caucasus related to the Samaritans, and that they almost certainly did not convert en masse to Judaism, though they certainly had some followers of that faith in their lands. Forget that there have been numerous genetic studies that show zero evidence that Ashkenazi Jews or any other type of Jew can trace their ancestry back to the Khazar Khaganate. Forget that similar studies tracing linguistic origins also fail to make this connection. As has been pointed out so many times on this podcast, people are going to believe what they're going to believe, and no amount of evidence is sufficient to dislodge these beliefs. After all, they'll say, these so-called studies you're talking about are funded by the very people who want to cover up the truth. The Khazar Mafia narrative is at once comprehensive, since it can explain pretty much anything you want to explain, and also flexible. Who the real Jews are is up to you. It's just not the people that most of us call Jews. As the website antihate.ca puts it, quote, Existing in a milieu of similar coded language and attempts to revise history, the term is an overt challenge to the legitimacy of modern Jews' claim to their own identity. So, now you know. When someone brings up the Khazars or the Khazarian Mafia, you know, regardless of what they seem to be saying, they're really just plain old anti-Semites. Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening.